I'm Marshall Kozlov. And I'm Mike Duran. Welcome back to Counterbalance. Mike, you and I are going to almost exclusively focus on Afghanistan and the broader implications of what happened in Kabul and what's continuing to happen in Kabul this week for the next few episodes, I'd say. So given the fact that we're kicking off this topic that is on everyone's minds, who are we speaking to this week and why did you choose him as our guest? We're speaking to Tom Lynch. I've known Tom... I don't know, 15, 16, 17 years. Uh, he's a career military officer uh, who has devoted a big chunk of his career to Afghanistan. Uh, he's a very cerebral guy and a strategic thinker. And I just couldn't think of anyone better to give us kind of the bigger picture of what's going on. I wanted to get away from the from the more contentious headlines. We are We all have positions on the political debate around Afghanistan. I wanted to get to some of the underlying strategic questions. That's a really good way of putting it. And that really sums up the approach of the episode. This is an interesting one for the two of us because, as you just said, Mike, we were looking to avoid just slinging contentious hot takes as the episode went about. So what was great about Tom is that we were able to sit back almost and just listen to a regional expert who is intricately involved in the conflict really give a really strong articulation of what's going on. So I would really think that this is the episode anyone who's looking to delve deeper into this topic area should start with. Now, before we dive in, a huge thank you to Hudson Institute for supporting this podcast and supporting our work. Hope you enjoy the episode. Let's dive in. Colonel Dr. Tom Lynch. Hi, how are you? Hi, Mike. Great to be here with you. Marshall, good to see you. Thanks. Uh, well, thanks for joining us. I, listen, I understand that before we get started, you have a disclaimer that you have to read for us. Yeah, right, Mike. Since I am a, a U.S. government Department of Defense employee, um, I, I need to remind all in your audience that uh, what you'll hear me talk about today are the uh, uh, fruits uh, and hopefully useful ones of my own research experience and analysis and do not necessarily represent the opinions or the policies of the U.S. government, the Department of Defense, or the National Defense University. Uh, thanks for keeping that in mind. Great. And just for our listeners' um, benefit, uh, I should say that you are the acting director of the Center for Strategic Research um, at the Institute of National Strategic Studies at the National Defense University in Washington, D.C. Did I get that right? Absolutely. Well done, sir. Thank you. And, and you, have, uh, you have a Ph.D. from Princeton University. You also have uh, a B.S. from uh, West Point, and you had a very long and distinguished military career with a lot of experience in Afghanistan. Why don't you why don't you tell us off the bat here some of your experience with Afghanistan? Yeah, great, Mike. Thanks very much. Yeah, so as you mentioned, uh, I was a 28-year uh, active duty armor officer, uh, initially branched and focused on uh, armor and cavalry, so a cold warrior uh, with time on the inter-Korean uh, border and the inter-German border. Then went off to graduate school at that little place that you referred to that you and I kind of know there in New Jersey, uh, did some teaching and came back uh, as uh, I finished to find that the Cold War had kind of ended. And we were doing our, our American unipolar moment thing, or as Francis Fukuyama said, the end of history. Uh, as a historian, I kind of never, you know, liked that title and didn't think it was valid. And long term, it has not been. Uh, but after transitioning then out of a Cold War mindset, uh, of course, 9-11 happened. And shortly after that, I got asked to go and uh, serve uh, as an army colonel, as a military special assistant for the U.S. ambassador to Afghanistan. Uh, his name is Zalmay Khalizad, and uh, your listeners may know him now as uh, the special envoy to Afghanistan, who was appointed by President Trump in uh, 2019 and who had worked on what I think we'll talk about a little later, which is the Afghanistan, uh, actually, I should say the U.S. Taliban peace deal in Afghanistan. Uh, so after that gig, I then went and worked at U.S. Central Command, which oversees the military region, and I worked 
worked as the uh, special assistant and director of the command advisory group uh, for the commander of U.S. CENTCOM with a lot of focus on Afghanistan. Uh, we were in Iraq at the time as well, but his name was General John Abizade. And uh, Mike, you and I had the privilege of, of meeting then uh, as I was uh, uh, taken by and, uh, and really uh, liked a, a great work that you did back in those days called Somebody Else's Civil War. And you may or may not recall, but we, uh, we happily had you down to CENTCOM to talk to all of our senior leaders about your conclusions in that piece and how things were proceeding from there. Uh, from that point, I went back to uh, the Middle East directly and spent time in Doha, Qatar, where I served as a U.S. military commander of a base there called Camp Asalia, which had oversight responsibilities for security and basing in Saudi Arabia, in southern Kuwait, uh, in a bit of UAE, and then for a while in Kandahar in Afghanistan. So spent time traveling back and forth again to Afghanistan, then came back from that. And after a bit of a reprieve at the Brookings Institution, went to work for then uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral Mike Mullen, uh, as his deputy director of his initiatives group with a lot of focus on, again, you guessed it, Afghanistan. Did that up until I retired. And I retired and came over here to National Defense University with a primary research gig focusing on, yes, again, you guessed it, Afghanistan and Pakistan, um, which has broadened and branched over the years from Afghanistan and Pakistan to India, to India's strategic rise, to the return of great power competition to the Far East and South Asia, uh, and also with a little bit of looking still retrospectively at counterterrorism. So, I mean, my history for the last uh, coming up now on 18 full years has been almost constantly involved with Afghanistan, either serving in the country, traveling to and from the country in military uniform, or traveling to and from there as a researcher, writing about it, uh, attending conferences about it, and dealing with it, though, in the context of the wider South Asia security framework, which I think is a point of interest that we might pursue a little bit as we discuss today. Just to get us started here, why don't you give us in, in a big, broad overview, how come after 20 years of fighting in that country, we were not able to, to defeat the Taliban? It's kind of shocking. We're, I want to title this episode, What Just Happened? Because it's, it's, it's really shocking. And if you could just give us the, the big dynamics that are at work. Yeah, Mike. Great. And I, I think you're exactly right on here. I think it's uh, it's important to kind of understand the story behind the story and particularly the story behind the news. And yes, I'll acknowledge as an 18-year guy uh, focused on things, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and South Asia, I am still somewhat of a, of a newbie, of a novice. Um, I can fill those gaps by, by reading, or writing, and working around those who are expert well beyond that. But you can never fill them all the way. Although having spent almost 20 years around it, I suspect that, you know, I'm certainly amongst those who, you know, can claim to have, you know, if not expertise, at least uh, uh, thick skin from having dealt with some of the challenges that are there. So in that context, let me take your question, which is a terrific one, and, and, and offer you a framework that I kind of use with students I teach here at National Defense University and at other teaching gigs around town in master's programs. It's what, what I'll call the, the three-layer blanket of security uh, that mattered to Afghanistan. And um, that those three layers really are kind of always been misunderstood by we Americans. And, and I raise my hand here and say that I'm one of those Americans that was the same way. When I first went to Afghanistan, uh, late 2003, early 2004, I misunderstood the frameworks and the dynamics of the region as being about Afghanistan and about being about counterterrorism and about what our mission was there. But slowly, slowly walking that dog, you find out that really in South Asia, the security framework is about the international level, the regional level, and then the local level. And the international level is important, but not the most important one. Although I think I would argue to you, and we can talk about this later, it does change the context of the regional level. So the international framework when I arrived, uh, you know, was the counterterrorism paradigm, which blew up and was fully exposed with 9-11. But if you recall, uh, you know, by the mid 90s, I mean, we knew that there were jihadis out there that hated us. And we're looking for an opportunity to attack us, defined as the U.S. in particular and the West in general. And, you know, by 1998, they had taken refuge again uh, in Afghanistan as a preferred location to plan, plot, and uh, help enable as a base, al-Qaeda, the base of global terrorism. Um, and so that framework was in full bloom. Now, just barely... Um, Six years before that, the full bloom international paradigm in the region was the Cold War, which of course ended with the Soviet departure and the collapse eventually of the Cold War paradigm, a paradigm which, by the way, to this day, 
Al-Qaeda and many Taliban leaders credit themselves with having succeeded at, right? That they were the ones that beat the Soviet Union and they're the ones that drove them off and therefore they won that war. And indeed, I think that underpinned a lot of what, you know, rhetorically the Taliban sustained themselves with over time. Rhetorically, I'll come back to physically how they did that in a second. But rhetorically, it's like we've defeated one empire. We can defeat another one if we just stick with it and stick to it and, you know, keep our framework in place. And so that paradigm, you know, changed basically. And, you know, I was there for the dawn of that one. And that counterterrorism paradigm, I would argue to you, kind of was the dominant one. And it's continued, you know, at least on and through about 2015, 2016. What about the regional paradigm? Well, the regional paradigm, which I would contend to you as I do with my you know, students here and in the pieces that I write, um, that really is the dominant framework for how South Asians see the situation they're in. And that framework is the Indo-Pakistani security di- uh, dilemma, right? One where both those sides hate each other. I mean, they hate each other to the extent, guys, that there are only two open border crossings for economic transit, ground economic transit, between the two countries. And even at those points, they don't allow trucks to go back and forth. You still have pictures of folks having to take boxes and bags off of trucks on the Indian side, carry them physically on their heads or their backs or trolleys over to the you know, trucks on the other side, load them up there, and then ship them back and forth. I mean, that's how... That's how intense the security dilemma still is. It's born of the ugly and and difficult birth of a partitioned subcontinent, India, on one side and Pakistan, initially on two sides, right? A West Pakistan and an East Pakistan. East Pakistan vanished after a bitter war uh, that was short but led to Pakistan losing basically half of its territory to the state that's now known as Bangladesh. And, And that paradigm and that framework really sets in place what for 70 years, although through different permutations, but for 70 years has been consistently an underpinning that that defines, I would argue to you, how India and Pakistan see the world, see themselves, and see things like their neighbors and things like proxy groups. And so let's hone in on Pakistan there. Uh, and I've written quite a bit on this, and, and Mike, I think you've seen some of it. It's, it. You know, it's out there in the press, and so I can't do it full justice here. But let me just say that for Pakistan, since it's smaller than India, always was, always has been, since it sees India as an implacable enemy that would take the advantage and the opportunity to swallow Pakistan whole if it could. Now, the truth is India hasn't felt that way for quite a while, but the objective truth doesn't matter to the security narrative that Pakistan has and portrays and that really is closely held by the Pakistan military and ISI, who are the de facto, I would argue to you, leaders of the security framework for the country. And so within that framework, since Pakistan is outnumbered, outgunned, outmanned by India, about six to one, um, Pakistan has always felt this need for irregular militias, what it calls its um, irregulars, but that we in general, since the start of the counterterrorism era, have referred to as terrorists, right? And amongst the constellation, and there are many, many of them that exist with, live with, and are around in Pakistan, and that the Pakistani military and its intelligence operations kind of manage, they don't necessarily control, but they manage them both for domestic security against nefarious Indian influence or other kinds of apostate religions like Shia Uh, Muslims as opposed to the Sunnis, which are the dominant sect, but then also in other fighting areas where Pakistan takes on India as a way of national survival in its narrative. And forces, these irregular forces, these jihadi militias have been used for decades in Jammu and Kashmir, right? The bitter area that was partitioned between the two countries, but never settled or resolved in terms of who owns them. And indeed, Pakistan also manages these militia uh, to prevent perfidious or insidious encirclement, particularly to its west and particularly in Afghanistan by forces that would be too aligned to Hindu India. And since 1994 or so, Pakistani security concerns about unrest and unbridled um, um, uh, civil war uh, in the Afghanistan that exploded after the Soviets left kind of led them to find a primary militant horse to ride in Afghanistan to kind of manage and control and tamp down on some of the problems there. That horse was what we now call the Afghan Taliban, arisen from refugee camps in Pakistan that had cropped up during the, the, the Soviet invasion, um, reconstituted, recalibrated, and then physically sustained and also emotionally sustained out of Islamabad 
Azad, but particularly Raul Pindi, uh, by the Pakistani military and its intelligence forces. And and they, of course, we know the history. They 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 succeeded in, in a war that started, you know, against other parts of Afghanistan in 1994-5, and then led to you know the siege of Kabul and establish of a of a um, uh, emirate, the first Islamic emirate uh, in the world uh, in Kabul by the Taliban, and that emirate lasted about five or six years and molly coddled international jihadists who, as we know, planned and plotted what we had go on from there. I mention all this because when we talk about what's happened in the ensuing 18 years since 2001, or actually it's going to be 20 years now, I should say, coming forward, my time, 18 years, the reality, 20 years, um, Pakistan's narrative about India has not changed. It hasn't changed. Indeed, if it's changed at all, it's changed in terms of worrying that Americans have been naive in Afghanistan and we've allowed too much Indian influence to develop, myths arising around India having you know, 18 consulates with all kinds of nefarious uh, intelligence operatives and things in the country, which we would work to try to disprove. And the Pakistanis would say, well, yeah, but you, know, you, can't, you can tell us, but you can't make us believe that, et cetera, et cetera. That hasn't changed. Okay. Then beneath that is the Pakistan-Afghanistan security dynamic, where Pakistan generally considers Afghans to be inferior, right? Um, um, they don't find Afghans to be particularly cultured. They don't find them to be particularly appealing. Uh, they find Afghans to be r ridiculously obstinate and in some ways repulsive, not the least of which because no Afghan government, uh, and I might add here, to include the Taliban government from 1996 to 2001, has ever given Pakistan what it wants in terms of a agreement, a formal written agreement that the boundary between Pakistan and Afghanistan, known as the Duran Line, which was drawn by another dead British aristocrat, you know, the same kind of guy who drew the lines between India and Pakistan, you know, um, those lines drawn back in the 1890s, Afghanistan has never formally acknowledged, right? And that drives Pakistan crazy, um, but they manage it nonetheless. Um, and so I mention that because from Pakistan's perspective, I mean, Afghanistan is an object, not a subject. And therefore, the default setting in Pakistan is to understand the real issues its real security narrative is being its struggle against India. And to the extent that the government in Afghanistan is not willing to totally exclude India, that the Americans were never able to force India out of the, the process totally, something we would, by the way, never do, um, Pakistan always remained suspicious, always felt that it needed its irregular proxies in place and in play to be the better option than even a good government in Kabul that could be, you know, susceptible to nefarious Indian influence. And so it's in that middle space, I'd argue to you, Mike uh, and Marshall and your listeners, that, that, you know, the mischief of the last 18 years took place in terms of what we were trying to do there, right? I mean, we, we, were, we were always going to struggle to produce a government that would be acceptable to Pakistan, given its very particular and persnickety security aims, and the fact that they were generally comfortable with keeping the Afghanistan Taliban you know, in a Goldilocks place, not too hot, not too cold, ready to engage, ready to involve when and as necessary. Um, and, you know, it turns out in the end, they were right. In the end, foreigners leave and Pakistan has to have its own forces and activities. And so that, I would argue to you, is what's made it very difficult if not impossible to build a government in Afghanistan that is going to sustain or a military that was sustainable going forward. Long way around of saying here that in terms of our aspirations and our you know, aims going into Afghanistan, uh, Mike and Marshall, uh, my personal assessment is that the aim of going in and trying to tamp down and eliminate safe havens for international jihadi terrorists was one that was transactional, and arguably that it occurred uh, and we, we attained it, but we were not able to attain it and then add on the layer of, well, now let's get an Afghan government that can help do this on its own or do this on itself. And an Afghan government that has a military that can do this. Because as we were building that, that was inimically threatening to Pakistan. Pakistan had no interest in that kind of strength. They were happy to work with us if we were about whacking Al-Qaeda dudes because much of Al-Qaeda they don't like anyway. There's a part of it that I think they can stand, uh, you know, but there's part of it that they don't like. Uh, but we were always kind of up against that Pakistani narrative. And then here's the kicker. In order to change this, we had like three different opportunities 
two of which I was involved with. The mini surge, where we got back into the business of uh, having forces on the ground in 2004 to 2005. Then the big surge in Afghanistan, which was from 2009 to 2011. And in each of those, I would argue to my bosses that we're really testing the proposition here. We're testing the proposition of whether or not Pakistan can see enough pressure and, and enough carnage on the Taliban that they want to get off that horse. Or that they want to change their security narrative and say, yeah, yeah, we'll live with something that, you know, the West is going to help construct here because we can manage that in our, you know, narrative focus on the uh, perfidious Indian security threat. Uh, I think both of those surges proved that we couldn't do that. We were not going to get that change. And oh, by the way, we were also not going to go to war with a country of then 180 to 185 million people in order to get them to make that change. And that's why I talk about kind of the harsh reality beneath the reality of what we're seeing today. We got kind of what we wanted, which we really had for our initial security goal, which was this macro counterterrorism. How do we stamp out Afghanistan as a hotbed of these international plots and plans? And there's a lot of goodness that I would argue came out of that. A lot of things that I think we prevented um, through that process. But trying to layer that next thing on good Afghan governments that Pakistan could live with, uh, good Pakistan, a good Afghan military that Pakistan could live with, the better than the uh, Taliban. Um, we, we were not easily going to get there. And we had warning signs over a decade ago that we couldn't get there. It's just there was no elegant way out. And we haven't got an elegant way out right now, but we're kind of out. It's, it's good to set the table that way. I want to take us back a little bit, though, and challenge a bit of the prep a bit of the premise of Mike's opening question by asking you to put on your historian hat when Mike was suggesting the fact that the Taliban ended up winning to some degree could be seen as surprising. On a historical basis, though, it seems as if, at least in our conventional wisdom, it's a given that any intervention in Afghanistan leads to failure. That's the cliche about the graveyard of empires. That's the talk about the Soviets in the 1980s, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. On a historical level, how should we consider any intervention in a country like Afghanistan? Great question. It does raise a lot of historical framing and context um, that is rich and layered. Um, so let me try to, you know, perhaps dip in, um, not all the way back, uh, but kind of, you know, back into, you know, what we would refer to as um, the um, post-World War II era. Uh, and again, I come back to that because the circumstances, you know, before the partition of of the subcontinent in India and Pakistan and, and the other countries that partitioned then as well in 47 was indeed somewhat different. I guess then when we fast forward into the, you know, Cold War paradigm and then the counterterrorism paradigm, you know, leading up to where we are right now, which, you know, I argue in a recent, you know, book that I published and in some courses I run here that we are now into a, you know, a great power competition paradigm, a multipolar great power competition paradigm at the international level. Um, the the main impetus underneath that is going into Afghanistan to do what and for how long, right? If you're going in for a short period of time and you're trying to achieve a transactional outcome, then you can probably do that. Um, that would have been us going in, finding, capturing, and killing bin Laden and all his leadership in one fell swoop, punishing the Taliban, sending them out, uh, and chastening them to the point where if they did come back, they'd know better and Pakistan would know better than to allow them to get that far into the weeds of allowing international jihadists uh, to plan and plot from there. Well, we never got all the way there because, you know, a lot of al-Qaeda escaped through Pakistan, Iran, other places. You know, we spent the better part of a decade going up to the assassination of bin Laden and then beyond finding and bringing to justice those guys or in some cases doing them justice by just eliminating them. Right. Um, and so, you know, we sent that message and, and I wrote way back in 2012 that once we killed bin Laden and most of those guys, you know, Al Qaeda as an international threat to me, and this is 2012, um, in my study of the counterterrorism world, they as international threat were minimized. 
They weren't gone, but they were minimized. But that didn't mean that there weren't others out there that could pursue an international jihadist framework and reestablish or, or reengage, you know, back in Afghanistan. And sure enough, when the Obama administration tried to get out of Afghanistan in 2014-15, you guys may recall this, uh, it wound up having to reverse course. And a main reason that it did was that we found that al-Qaeda quickly reconstituted some training camps down in the south of the country and led to a very major but underreported firefight in September of 2015, where U.S. Special Forces partnered with Afghan Special Forces, who, by the way, I should add here, Afghan Special Forces are really, really good, okay? These guys are good. They're not the guys that melted away, um, you know, with the Taliban here. They're really good. And and that opened our eyes in September of 15 to say, no, no, we can't get all the way out because al-Qaeda could reconstitute itself. And these Taliban guys are not going to, you know, separate themselves from al-Qaeda. And so, you know, I guess what I'm saying at that point is we were kind of stuck in this point where we didn't see al-Qaeda going all the way away. Uh, we didn't see the Taliban, you know, as likely to, you know, stand up against them fully. Uh, but we were now to the point, clearly, by the time the Trump administration arrived and we tried one more time, that third time, right, that little, you know, I won't call it a surge, but we'll call it, you know, a mini uptick in forces to try to again send the message that we're not going to tolerate these kinds of things and you Taliban are not acceptable to us and Pakistan, you know, this is the Trump administration, we're serious this time. Um, but, you know, that longer term aim, that that aim of trying to get Afghanistan governance and military structured so that Pakistan would take it seriously and not see the Afghan Taliban as a better mid to long term alternative. Again, that didn't take hold. So, you know, contextually to your question, yeah, transitory go in and out. Those things, I think, you know, historically can be done in Afghanistan, but trying to stay there longer and kind of build out this, this uh, responsible central framework it can't work just because of the cross-cutting cultures and the cross-cutting interests and the dominant ones since 47 being not just the tribes, but the tribes managed, particularly by Pakistan, in a way to facilitate and enable its uh, existential struggle with India. Maybe you can help me understand the Pakistani elements of the Pakistani-Taliban relationship that have never been clear to me. Let me, let me ask the question to you in, in this way. Can the United, could the United States have ever had a conversation, a very simple conversation with Pakistan where we said, listen, we don't care about Taliban control of the Pashtun areas of Afghanistan. We understand your concerns um, and your desire to have influence in Afghanistan. What we can't tolerate are the international jihadis, al-Qaeda in particular. We want your help to eliminate those guys. And if you give us that, then, then, then we, we'll turn a blind eye to everything else. Was that deal ever on the table? And did we even know who to talk to in Pakistan who could deliver that deal? First of all, could, could Pakistan deliver that deal? Who in Pakistan could deliver it? And could we ever have that conversation with them? Yeah, great question. Maybe I can reverse the order of your ask, though. To the first one being, could we in the United States ask that question? I.e., could we in the United States have basically said, we don't care about Pashtun swaths of the country, so long as we have assurance that international jihad is not reestablished there and threatening to us. And I would say there are only two places in our last two decades where we could do that. The first one was right after our invasion in Afghanistan. And to be fair to the Bush administration, I think the historical record will say that we did sort of kind of have that ask. You, you can go back and look and see me quoted in uh, a piece by the venerable Stephen Call, who is a great expert on Afghanistan, Pakistan, you know, former editor at the Washington Post, now up at Columbia Journalism School. You see me quoted in his 2012 piece about finding Mullah Omar, uh, where I say basically that, you know, as I arrived there in 2004, I mean, I knew that in 2002, 2003, that the entrails of the conversations that have been had in 02 and 03 um, were basically that the United States would finish mopping up the Al-Qaeda problem inside Afghanistan and that they asked 
they being, you know, a State Department, Rich Armitage and others, you know, asked and thought they got assurances from, um, you know, then Pakistani President uh, General Musharraf that he would take care of the Taliban. We got it. We'll take care of it. Matter of fact, there are even some quotes if you go back in newspapers where that's on record. That's what the Pakistani said. And we bought that. We, we engaged that. Now, we may have had some skepticism initially, but that skepticism was quickly overridden by this little thing called the invasion of Iraq, where even if we wanted to doubt Musharraf, we didn't have the resources to do a heck of a lot about it. Then, like I said, we, we got into the 2003-04 period, and we decided that uh, a, a, a solid way to get out of Afghanistan would be to do what we were doing in Afghanistan, and that is to fund at least partial do what we were Government doing in building. Iraq. You right. Mean. Yeah. Sorry. Did I say in, in Iraq? I've, you know, you said in Afghanistan. Oh, you I apologize. Do, so yeah, do, do. What do in Afghanistan we're doing in Iraq. Um, but we did it on a much smaller scale, figuring Afghanistan was a smaller scale. So that was one time we could have asked the question, Mike. And I, I think we did ask the question. It's just we did not hear the subtext of what Musharraf meant. And I say this in the piece with Steve Call, and Call does as well as he writes it. Uh, you know, we didn't understand the coded language there. The coded language was, "Yeah, I'll take care of them, but we're going to treat them the way we treat all of our good militias, right? You know, they'll go on the back bench, and we'll we'll mollify them um, as much as we can, but we're probably not going to eliminate them. But we won't tell you that." After we start back in, though, trying to you know build out the Afghanistan government, and we've drawn in our international partners, and we draw in a coalition of military, which at one point was 38 countries, guys. 38 countries were helping us and involved in trying to build out the Afghan military. You know, while well, I was still in uniform, and we were doing this process in the late 2000s. I mean, a non-trivial effort um, to try to you know help build this thing out and get it you know sustainable, durable, and responsive to a central government. During that period, to have a conversation that basically would have said, yeah, we're okay with the partition of Afghanistan, you know, pff, you guys in Kabul, you know, just deal without the Pashtun thing. Let the Pakistanis, you know, have their wish list here. They get the Durand line built in. And they don't have to worry about it. Uh, we were not going to have that conversation. We just weren't. And I don't think we were going to have that conversation, you know, all the way up and through the midpoint of the Trump administration, where at that point, after, as you recall, the Trump administration agreed in August of 2017 with a interagency plan to, again, plus up military forces, go back on some of the Obama withdrawal, again, to try to signal and, and test again whether we could you know, change Pakistan's framework or change the strength of the Afghan Taliban and, and or you know, give more support to the government in Kabul. You know, by the middle portion of that, we see that not working. We see a dramatic change in the leadership, right? You know, H.R. McMaster is out and John Bolton's in and we see changes in the State Department. And, and we see then, I think, a government led by President Trump willing to kind of say that but not say it, basically, which is that I'm sending over now this emissary, Zalmay Khalizad, and as part of that process, we're going to ask you, Pakistan, to let out of house arrest guys like, you know, Mullah Baradar, who will, will soon be the leadership of the reconstituted Afghanistan Emirate, and, and we will start talking to them about what the conditions are for withdrawal. Now, we'll start initially by saying that we want the Afghan government in this, and then when the Taliban said, no, we don't want them in, we said, okay, we'll proceed without them, which by default, Mike, I would say is you know giving the Taliban now kind of, if not a blank check, at least a big pen and a huge check. How much do they want? How do they want it? And then when we tack on releasing 5,000 of their best leaders and fighters from Afghanistan and our forces start to withdraw unilaterally to include all the contractors, which is not a trivial thing when you realize contractors were what was underwriting almost all the logistics of the Afghan National Army and almost all of the maintenance of their critical, critical aviation enabler, um, you kind of get that we were to that point. And yes, in both cases, you know, we knew who to ask. In the case of Musharraf in, you know, 0203, we knew who to ask, but we didn't know what we were getting for a reply, realistically. I mean, we didn't, because we didn't think the way Musharraf and the Pakistani military thought. And then up here, you know, 2018 and beyond uh, with this negotiating process that led us to kind of where we are now, I mean, we knew who to ask and we knew who to get engaged with. And we did. We got a sit down in Qatar with the representatives of the Afghan Taliban. Uh, and we also allowed them to kind of draw the line, which was, nope, no Afghan government. They're not going to participate. We'll participate directly with the Americans. So, I mean, I guess to answer your question is, 
For a long period of time, no, because we didn't want to be seen as betraying the trust of the Afghan government in Kabul because we were trying to build it as our exit plan. By the time we get to 2018-19, we realize that they're not going to be our exit plan, and we need to try to do the deals that we can do with the guys who are still going to have influence in at least a large part of the country and try to get the softest landing we can find for that. I think the next question that would be very helpful for setup is help us in the audience understand what happens after the peace deal. Just the how how did or did not the peace deal lead to what we all saw last week and last weekend. Right. So the the, the peace deal, it's, again, it's important for your audience to know that that was a peace deal between the U.S. and the Taliban, not with the Afghanistan government. There was this, sorry, just a, sorry to interrupt. This is just the February 2020 deal. Correct. The Trump this is just- exactly February 29th, 2020. Representatives of the U.S. government sign with uh, lead representatives of the Afghanistan Taliban uh, an agreement that comes to be known as the peace deal, but it was a peace deal between the U.S. and the Taliban um, that sets in motion a conditions-based, but I would argue very loosely conditions-based, pathway to the United States and its allies militarily leaving Afghanistan. And the main things that it asks the Taliban to do are threefold. One, to not attack U.S. or Western forces during the period of this, this drawdown, which was geared to be 14 months, geared to be, unless either side abrogated the treaty, and was found in abrogation, to go to May 1st, and then the U.S. and its Western allies would all be out. So the first thing was no attacks against U.S. and Western forces, and it was reciprocal. We agreed not to attack the Taliban, okay? There were some other subparts of this, and I mentioned some of them, which included you know, the release of certain political prisoners and, and Taliban, et cetera. But that's part one. Part two, and I think this is important because it didn't get a lot of play or press, and it's kind of embedded in the language of the three-page document, but it asks for assurance that the Taliban not only are not going to affiliate again or allow in areas that they manage international jihadists, specifically al-Qaeda, but also others of that ilk like ISIS Khorasan, which is ISIS's presence in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Um, And then third, it asked, it didn't demand, but it asked that the Taliban got involved with a political dialogue process with the Afghan government to figure out power sharing and power transition. Right? So those are the three main elements of that document. Notice the third and the afterthought was the Afghan government. Back to the point I made, Mike, to your earlier question is, you know, by this time, you know, we're not any more concerned about the Afghan government. We're cajoling it. We're telling it to get its act together. We're telling it to stop its internal, you know, fighting and, 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 and stand up and, and negotiate with the Taliban. But it's all kind of difficult. So what comes of those three things? Well, um, the three outcomes were kind of predictable. First, the breathing space in us not being attacked by the Taliban and us not attacking the Taliban, particularly when you added in the release of those 5,000 you know, stalwart Taliban you know, a month after this agreement is done, it allows the Taliban to basically reconstitute and reorganize what it already has as kind of a pretty strong shadow presence in the country. Um, and it, it also allows the Taliban to do what it does in spades, which is not forbidden to do in the agreement, which is to go and attack pretty vigorously Afghan government national security forces, Afghan government regional and local leaders, and to basically commence a campaign of a classic campaign, I might add, of political intimidation and um, um, destruction of the opposing government uh, to set the conditions to have the upper hand in political negotiations, right? Uh, At the same time, it allows us, we Americans, and our allies to move about in a relatively unfettered way um, to gather up our forces, retrograde our forces, organize and consolidate stuff, and move out. Um, and we proceeded to do that. And your audience may remember certain announcements towards the end of the Trump administration, you know, trumpeting the timelines being accelerated for our stuff moving out of country. At the same time that's going on, though, if you're sitting in Islamabad or the capital of the Pakistan military, Rawalpindi, you're looking and you're saying, okay, a couple of things here. One, 
Who's likely to be more forceful and dominant once we get through these negotiations? Well, you always expected it was going to be the Afghan Taliban. Now you're pretty darn sure it's going to be them. So any restraints that you may have had on, you know, asking the Taliban to not, you know, go and kill Afghan government people and other kind of stuff. I mean, those kind of limits are off, right? Uh, and so that's what gets practiced. At the same time, though, I think to be fair to the Taliban and the Pakistanis, what they also promised to do there is they promised to take action against international jihadis. And we know in an unclassified sense, what we probably would know a lot more of if we had classified documents is that the Taliban followed through on that. They, it was already in their interest because they are bitter enemies of ISIS Khorasan. They're much more affiliated with Al-Qaeda. But they did take the fight to ISIS Khorasan, both in Afghanistan and Pakistan, and do a lot of the work that maybe our U.S. Uh, special forces and Afghanistan special forces had been doing a lot previous to that. They now took that mission on, and they took it on with relish because it was in their particular interest, and it was in the Pakistanis' interest that they do that. Uh, Al-Qaeda and affiliate Al-Qaeda structures, particularly those that are engaged with the Haqqani network, which is part of the Taliban, uh, and friendly with the Al-Qaeda network going back for decades, and eh, not so much. Okay, uh, And the other thing that they did is, by my research, the Afghan Taliban lived pretty darn true to their promise not to be involved in attacking Americans and Westerners. It is correct that there were no American or Western casualties attributed um, to Taliban attacks from February of 2020 all the right way through last week. And it's also true that there was only one suspected attack against a U.S.-Afghan joint base, a mortar attack, that the Taliban didn't outright deny, and so may have been some confusion, but nobody was killed in that. So you see what I'm saying here? I mean, we, for the last 18 months, got what we asked for. And right. the Taliban got what they asked for. They got time to buy, to set up, to structure. And we now know they also use that time, perhaps, to you know, set in motion you know, um, financial bribes, you know, promises made about you know, families being kept safe and whatever. And you know, if you're an Afghan security force on the ground and you're looking at that and you're seeing the Americans leave and you're seeing you know, the Afghans be in there and you're seeing the Pakistanis not calling the Afghan Taliban bad names, maybe it's not in your, your best interests to keep up the big fight, you know, when the Taliban actually do come forward. The other thing I want to mention here, though, that I think is important for your listeners to know is that one May deadline for the U.S. to be out had consequences. And the Biden administration came in wrestling with that as to what to do, how to do it, concerns the Taliban weren't doing all that they should be doing, but the letter of the law, maybe they weren't violating. But that May 1st deadline, when President Biden first stood up in March of this year, and talked in some ambiguous terms about, you know, maybe reestablishing U.S. activities to protect ourselves and blah, 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 blah. On March 26th, and I still have that document, you know, right on the side of my desk, the Taliban spokesman came out and basically in no uncertain terms said, you guys stay beyond May 1st, it's blood on your hands. We will not be responsible for holding on to any of our agreements. Anybody that's in this country that's you know, a Westerner is fair game and fair target. And that told us two things. One, they knew they were strong enough then to move forward. And two, the Biden administration was in a deep pickle. And you saw Biden come back out <laughs> in late April and then again in July. And if you look at his statements like I do, you see he's saying basically, hey, guys, uh, we're leaving. We're a little slower, but you know, don't misunderstand this as us not in the, you know. So bottom line, guys, is the Taliban made a credible threat. And this administration inherited a situation. And I, and I would argue to you, this administration could have done a lot better in a lot of different areas on making this be less ugly. But one of the things they couldn't do without doing a resurge of a lot of troops that the American public was never going to accept was to protect forces that right now were highly vulnerable to the Taliban's status, even as the clock and the calendar turned into January of 2021. We didn't have the upper hand. And some of the coding of the Biden statements were public messaging to the Taliban and to the Pakistani intelligence service minders, hey, don't punish us after May 1st. We're still on the way out, guys. Don't start you know, killing our forces off. And I would predict to you that that frame of reference, guys, is, is likely, I didn't say absolutely, I said likely, <laughs> for the record, it's probably going to continue for two or three, maybe even four more weeks as the Taliban follow through on allowing the international airport and other places for foreigners and Americans to get out to continue to have that happen in an unfettered way. And we can talk more about that if you want to, about why I think that's likely to happen. So you've actually just made a powerful argument 
that the um, those people who have been claiming that uh, Biden could have just done nothing and everything would have been fine. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a common argument you hear among many of my friends, actually, that you know, for the last 18 months, uh, almost no Americans have been killed. And so we could have just hung on with a small counterterrorism uh, force and everything would have been fine. But you're, you're really saying that, no, if they, if they hung on with that force, then the Americans were going to start to die again. That's the dilemma that the Biden administration faced. Yes, absolutely true. And if I can take a second here, because again, it's taped to the side of my desk. Here's the March 26 Taliban statement, official statement released on the English uh, of the voice of jihad. And it reads this. If, God forbid, all foreign troops not withdrawn from Afghanistan on a specified date in line with the Doha Agreement, that's 1 May, undoubtedly it will be considered a violation of the accord by America for which it shall be held liable and which shall also harm its international standing. In such a case, the Islamic Emirate, a representative of the believing, vigilant, and Mujahid Afghan nation, will be compelled to defend its religion and homeland and continuous jihad armed struggle against foreign forces to liberate its country. All responsibility for the prolongation of war, death, and destruction will then be on the shoulders of those who committed this violation of the agreement. Statement by the Islamic Emirate regarding vaguely worded statements by the President of the United States. So, I mean, again, I'm not telling you that that's dispositive. I mean, clearly we would have to look at intelligence beneath the surface and find out or not. But I'm saying just matching that with the fact that that statement's made a year after the release of 5,000 hardcore hardened veterans, a year into what's been a concentrated and very highly effective um, armed campaign uh, of death and destruction against Afghan provisional government and military forces. I don't think this was an idle threat. Um, I think it was pretty clear. And so the fact that we hadn't seen all these deaths since February of 2020, you know, I, I'm going to argue was kind of an artificial circumstance, right? And to so to play that up as a justification for staying longer, one has to simultaneously take a look at the conditions in March of 2020 and look at this statement and say whether or not one thinks that in some bizarre way we were going to have enough military force already below 2,500 or dedicate enough new force to include, you know, aerial attacks that would kill innocent civilians and get the approbation of the world against us, or that the Pakistani military was somehow going to, you know, ratchet back real hard and say, no, no, don't kill these Americans with this agreement. I personally haven't been around this place in space for almost 20 years. I don't think that was going to happen, guys. I think it was going to be back time to show the Americans that we can kill a lot of you because you're not following through. And that's why I attribute Biden's statements about Afghanistan in the period just before and then after May 1st to be assurance statements, to be statements saying, don't come after us and kill us. We are a little bit long, but we're working out the technical details. We're not abrogating the treaty and we're also not baiting you so we can then suddenly flood in the 82nd Airborne and thousands of others to restart this fight. Does that make sense? Yep. No, it really does. I I think for our last question here, I'm just personally struggling to think through how we should consider the next few weeks, especially just how rapidly everything seems to have fallen apart over the weekend. What would you suggest I and other listeners consider, either positive or negative, in the coming weeks? Very great question, Marshall. Thanks for asking it. And let me put it in context. Uh, As Mike knows, you know, I spent the better part of four years in Afghanistan, only one station there, but enough times, other times to, you know, uh, accredit, you know, other um, uh, emotional chips, if you will, for the time there, like any other veteran that's there. I've also, you know, had the unfortunate um, tragedy of two close military um, associates die at the hands of Taliban roadside bombs over the years, and another five or six friends on the civilian side wind up losing their lives to the hands of the Taliban. This is emotional. It's emotional for all of us. The visions and the scenes are are not pretty. And yes, we were kind of not set up for what we were going to see here, you know, in advance. But, but, this is not 1996. Afghanistan is going to lose some of the progress that it's made socially, politically, and culturally 
since 1996, but 1996 has what I would call a new chapeau aggression. Today has different than 1996, no longer a counterterrorism chapeau over what's going on in that part of the world, but rather a great power competition chapeau. And what's going to change moving forward is as we get out, the Chinese just because they're all over Pakistan with their Belt and Road Initiative and the Chinese Pakistan, they're going to become much more prominent. And we should watch for the degree to which, because I watch, and I got a bunch of clippings here from you know, Al-Qaeda spokesmen and other terrorist spokesmen in Pakistan, fingering the Chinese as being the new great Satan of the world for how they're treating Uyghur Muslims and fingering and, and taking responsibility for attacking Chinese workers in Pakistan and affiliations growing with Rohingya Muslims, right? Rohingya from out of Myanmar who have no love for the Chinese um, affiliating with these groups. We're going to see in the next five, six, seven months as the sting of this fades, we're going to see that new paradigm mixing in here with the Indo-Pakistani security dilemma, which drives all of this. What I'm saying this, though, is that the Taliban are going to have restraints from the Pakistanis who are close as lips and teeth with the Chinese to try to not, you know, oxygenate that jihadist space again, right? Pakistan has even more incentive to get involved now to tamp this down than they even did with us because the Chinese aren't there to do it. And we're not there to do it anymore, right? So you see what I'm saying in that. So take from this that the paradigm has shifted. It's not going to be a retro back to 96 to 2001. There's a risk of the resurgence of Islamic terrorism. Um, uh, Chairman General Milley just testified to that last week, and I agree with him. But where that initial focus is, is not likely to be so much on us in the West. It's likely to be more towards this new rising framework that's galvanizing some of the attention in the jihadist space. And then the other thing I'd like your listeners to take out of this, not by way of trying to be apologist, not by way to try to take uh, false credit, but if you look back at what the initial layered objective was in Afghanistan, that is us going in there to eliminate terrorist safe haven. Terrorist safe haven for what? Terrorist safe haven to, with impunity, plot, plan, and then execute catastrophic international global terrorism against the U.S. and particularly its partners and allies. One can look at that and say, we succeeded. Guys, we succeeded. And you can Google up, you know, dozens of plots, I have them in my research files, that were hatched and cooked in either southern Afghanistan or Pakistan in this period from, you know, 03 to about 2015 or 16, and see that for all the challenges we had with Pakistan, there was enough information sharing, intelligence gathering, and work between their intelligence services and ours, between our special forces and theirs, at least up and before the death of bin Laden, um, we inhibited a lot of bad stuff, guys, that could have, you know, gone after our bridges or our tunnels or some of our buildings. Um, there's a lot of stuff out there that we inhibited. That That is not nothing. It may seem like too little right now. And we can have the argument later as to whether or not the cost in blood over 2,400 Americans dead and, you know, other tens of thousands wounded and treasure, which we can estimate, you know, somewhere between about, you know, Two trillion and higher, whether that was too high. But I think to, to take out, if not all the sting, at least some of the bitterness about what we're seeing right now, we can say that what we did do in that country did produce a transactional outcome that was at the heart of what our national security interest was during the counterterrorism era, which is to prevent this unfettered safe haven from again plotting, planning, and then credibly executing an attack that would kill thousands of innocents in the West and would threaten the confidence, the very confident underpinnings of our government structures and potentially our financial institutions, which of course is what bin Laden wanted to begin with, which was the crumbling of the financial institutions with the lack of confidence that we could defend ourselves. So I, I kind of offer you that as a, hopefully a context uh, framer and a, a point of departure from what could otherwise be and understandably be a moment given the visuals we have of kind of despair or despondence. Let, let, us, let us not judge the history right now with these visuals on our televisions. Let's, let's look at it from more of a longer, wider context like I know you like to do on this podcast and understand it for what it was that had positive effect, why it struggled and, and inevitably did not achieve all it wanted to do, and why the future is not going to be the same 
as what the past was, even though these guys called the Taliban are reappearing in Kabul. So uh, for my final question, let me ask you to just very briefly tell us what your recommendation would be to President Biden or to any of his successors about what our strategic goal in Afghanistan should be in this new era that you have that you have described and if if you if you don't want to get into specific goals just what's the challenge that has to be at the center of our um, at the center of our thinking excellent question let me let me try to sketch it briefly on two dimensions one kind of the the short term how to um, mitigate the present we do need to invest time, energy, and effort to get out all those Afghans who want to get out, who supported and assisted us over all these years, much as we have an obligation to get out all of our contractors. And I think I think our diplomats are working that with the Taliban right now. I hope I'm right. I can point to you with the fact that I know that we have set up in countries that I used to live in, Kuwait and Qatar, um, places where we have transition um, teams that can expedite visas and provide basing and security for uh, visitors in, in, in Doha, Qatar, and uh, south of Kuwait City. And, and I hope we will use those vigorously and, and um, uh, rapidly to, to get all those out. We owe that. At the same time, I think we owe ourselves to at least maintain some kind of a diplomatic presence there. Now, whether we have to append ourselves to the Swiss embassy or do something else, I mean, I, I think it's in our interest to at least have people there who can talk to and engage with the Taliban as a means of reminding them about the international communities watching carefully that they not fully and and hideously unravel a lot of the progress that's been made in terms of women's rights, in terms of education, in terms of other things. I think that kind of a reminder, coupled with the international community pressure, will see a Taliban that is not going to be anybody's bowl of cherries, but can be better than what it was and at least help show faith with those institutions that we've tried to build up, rightfully tried to build up over time. What about the mid to long term? In mid to long term, I don't think the counterterrorism paradigm is completely dead in the region. I do believe that there will be enough space, no matter how hard the Taliban or the Pakistani military try, and they may not try that hard, for a reconstitution of some kind of jihadist militant training camps. I think we need to invest ourselves in one, a diplomatic approach with Pakistan that offers a transactional exchange for information about those places that may be breeding international jihadists and a tacit set of agreements that we can get that intelligence sharing done and we can, if we need to, send in strike assets to take on things that they don't want to take on. That's going to be a bitter pill because, you know, Pakistan owns a lot of what's happened here. But listen, I've studied the Pakistanis and, and broken bread with them long enough to know they are nothing if not transactional. If this can be made in their interest, they'll do it. And then finally, we need to acknowledge the change in the South Asia region, which is ongoing and that gets lost too much because it's moving at a slow pace. And that is the rise of India as a strategic player with more than just a regional role and the rise of the partnership between the U.S. and India. You know, we now have four framework agreements with the Indian military. The last two of them only signed recently during the Trump administration, which basically are the same four agreements, guys, that we have with all of our allies and partners all over the world right? Allies all over the world. Now, India doesn't want to talk about alliances. India is allergic to the phrase. But if we work common with the Indians, share their intelligence about what's going on in this counterterrorism space, and utilize these, these, these networks that we have and these arrangements quietly so we don't offend Indians who are uber-nationalist, we have other platforms to get assets into and out of Afghanistan to work against jihadists that may appear there that are against our interests and against India's interests. And that is what I would see as kind of the, the shifting framework of our security dynamic in the region is this, this closer affinity, not that we haven't worked with India counterterrorism, but kind of more of a strategic affinity to now looking to, to manage what could be problematic in Afghanistan again if Pakistan can't manage it on behalf of their Chinese clients. I hope that helps.
It's, it's enormously helpful. I, I, I've learned so much from this conversation. Uh, it's really been deeply enlightening. It's uh, really a pleasure to have you, and I hope we can have you back to talk more about the, the India question, the India-Pakistan, India-China. I think um, it, I, I hope our listeners have uh, benefited from this as much as I have. Well, I'd love that, Mike and Marshall, and thanks so much for making the time today. Thanks for joining us. That's all we have here. Huge thank you to everyone for tuning in. Huge thank you to Mike and a huge thank you to Hudson Institute for supporting our work. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you.